Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Emily Burt, editor. And I'm Lucinda Rouse, senior reporter at Third Sector, the UK's leading title for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. We're continuing our environmental series this week and we'll be focusing on how funders can help voluntary organisations respond to the climate crisis. This follows our discussion with Janet Thorne from Reach Volunteering about how charities without a specific environmental remit can become climate responsive. And before that, Jabir Butt from the Race Equality Foundation on which social groups are most affected. But before we get to that, we have our news editor, Andy Ricketts, here to tell us about a couple of top stories from the sector this week. So hi, Andy. Hello. What are you? (laughs) It's good. Yeah. (laughs) So excited. All three of us together. Wonderful. What have you got to tell us about this week? Okay, well, I'm going to talk about a couple of stories. The first one is about interviews. Now, anyone who's been interviewed will know that it can be a bit of a nerve wracking experience. But the NSPCC has recently started a new process whereby they are giving candidates the questions that they're going to ask them in advance of the interview they say that it helps people prepare it's good for people who are neurodiverse or otherwise anxious about the interview process and it helps remove the element of surprise and the sense that maybe the interviewers are trying to catch people out when they come to the interview and it turns out that there's actually quite a few other charities that already doing it. Diabetes UK, Cancer Research UK, the British Red Cross have all said they're doing it. And actually then since we published the story, loads of other charities have said, oh, we've been doing this for ages. So maybe we are a little bit behind the curb in terms of catching on to this idea. But it does seem really interesting. And obviously in the context of us having just done some interviews yeah, for third sector ourselves, we didn't do this. We missed the boat. We did miss the boat on this. So we'll have to review it for next time. But it's really nice to see the charity sector leading the way on this, especially to see those small charities which have had this clearly built into their practices for quite a long time. I think it's a great idea. I think there's always going to be certain elements of surprise in an interview situation. And obviously in some situations you want people to be able to think on their feet. But I am sure much as it is with podcasting, if you can go into something with at least a broad idea of what you're going to say on the mic before it starts, then it doesn't matter if you end up going slightly off the beaten track. That always helps. Yes. I mean, I wonder if there are any downsides to this arrangement. Well, I guess there would be the concern that any candidate might not necessarily write the answers themselves. Get like chat GPT get, to do it. <laughs> or just someone who knows what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> and it might lead to people blagging it a bit. I mean, I think the response to that from the charity's perspective that are using it, they would say, well, we can also ask follow-up questions mm. along that subject to dig a bit further in to see if the candidates really have got the knowledge that they're talking about. But the NSPCC say... You know, they want their workforce to better reflect the diverse group of people that they work with. And they think that this is a really good way of doing that. And actually looking into this a bit deeper, there seems to have been great enthusiasm from organisations and people that have employed this approach. Yeah, I read somewhere as well that it can be quite reassuring for the interviewer as well, because some people feel quite anxious about thinking on their feet themselves on the other side of the conversation and working out what questions they want to ask to get the best out of their candidates. And actually, it isn't great if you're interviewing someone and you ask them a question and then they're just sitting there like in stunned, awkward silence. So this is, you know, one way of trying to ameliorate that situation. Mm, Very interesting. And have you got another story that you've been following? Yes, the next one is about inheritance tax. Now, some people who have been around the sector for a while might remember that in 2011, 
the government at the time introduced a new policy which was designed to incentivize people to leave a gift to charities in their will. And they said that anybody who left at least 10% of the value of the estate to charity would receive a reduction in the amount of inheritance tax that they'd have to pay on their estate. So it'd be reduced from 40% to 36%. Mm-hmm. Now, what's been happening recently is that there's been moves apparently in the Conservative Party and a a group of about 50 MPs have apparently been lobbying for the Conservative Party to adopt a new policy for the next general election whereby they'll abolish inheritance tax entirely. And this has prompted Remember a Charity, which is the consortium that represents about 200 charities working together to encourage people to leave a gift to charity in their will to be quite concerned because I think they're worried that this incentive that's been there for the last sort of decade or so, if that's removed, that could have a negative impact on charitable giving by legacy. So I think they are naturally worried about what might happen if this is taken away and they're they're urging the Conservative Party to think this position through more thoroughly before they do it. And I guess the hope is that if they do decide to abolish inheritance tax they can still find some way of incentivizing people to leave a gift to charity in their will. And obviously we are now starting to move into the season with a general election almost certainly coming at some point next year. Mm-hmm. We're starting to move into the point where the various political parties are thinking about their positions and we'll start to get some of these ideas emerging. So it'd be interesting to see what things might come out that could affect the voluntary sector. We obviously already know that the Labour Party wants to remove the tax breaks that are afforded mm-hmm. to independent charitable schools which will no doubt be a big debate if that comes to pass. But we'll see what other things come along as we hurtle towards the next general election at some point next year. Absolutely. And we will have to hope that legacies aren't affected because they've been a rapidly growing income stream for charities in recent years. We've seen actually lots and lots of growth in this area. It would be such a shame if we then saw that go off a cliff because of that incentive being removed. Great. Well, thanks very much, Andy, for that uh, news analysis. Moving on to our main feature this week, we are joined by two guests to talk about funding environmental cause areas. With us in the studio is Natasha Ratter. Natasha is the Environmental Sector Lead at the Environmental Funders Network, where she seeks to strengthen the effectiveness of the environmental charity sector. So hi, Natasha. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And joining us from Edinburgh is Rachel Heidecker, Senior Policy and Engagement Officer at the Association of Charitable Foundations, or ACF, where she manages the Funder Commitment on Climate Change Framework, which supports funders in addressing the causes and impacts of climate change. Hello, Rachel. Thank you very much for joining us. Hi, thank you, Lucinda. Great to be with you today. And just to kick off, I would like to play a clip from our episode two weeks ago with Janet Thorne from Reach Volunteering, in which she complains about the lack of funding options available for charities which don't have a specifically environmental remit who want to do more to address the climate crisis. There's more stuff we'd love to do. I'd love to do a a programme on encouraging boards to really explore the intersection between climate and their own missions in collaboration with others, for example. But we need funding for that. And that's one of the challenges. There's just not much funding that I've seen that's strategic and systemic funding uh, for climate. So, yeah. Yeah. And I suppose particularly funding that organisations who aren't 
first and foremost about the environment can access for environmental causes. Are, are there any that you're aware of? Ah, you know, I can't think of any. No, I mean, there's ones which are like green projects in your local community, right? The lottery's got that kind of funding, but the sort of more, how do we look at this systemically and how do we look at this outside our silos? So there's just not much funding that I've seen that's strategic and systemic funding for climate. I would be very interested to hear both of your thoughts and views on that. Perhaps we could start with Rachel. How do you respond to Janet's assertion that there's a gap in the support available from funders? Yes, so at ACF, as you've mentioned, we host the Funder Commitment on Climate Change. And what we really aim to do with that is to make it clear to funders that are part of our organisation and all funders in the UK that really climate is relevant to their charitable mission. And so to encourage them to consider how they can integrate climate considerations into their work and one of those areas being funding. So we have a pillar on committing resources to environmental causes, to causes to mitigate or adapt around climate change, but also around nature, biodiversity. And we see funders taking a range of approaches to that. So some do fund the sort of activity that Janet mentions there around projects in local communities, but other funders are coming together in collaboration to talk about how to empower local people and to take action on climate. For example, the NPC Everyone's Environment Programme. And also other funders are adding in, I suppose, climate top-ups to their existing grantees. So to offer them additional funding to consider how they can make an existing project more environmentally conscious or maybe take into account ways to improve access to nature or other considerations like that. Okay, so it seems that there is hope. And Natasha, how about you? Would you sympathise with Janet's frustration there? You have a pretty unique perspective at EFN in that you can see both from the environmental charity side and also the environmental funders side what's going on. I would 100% sympathise with her. So at EFN, our aim is to increase the amount of money that's going towards environmental work and also to make that funding more effective. So we produce a report every few years and we're just sort of crunching all of the numbers at the moment to produce our next one, which will come out next year. So unfortunately, the data I have is slightly out of date. It's from 2021. But that showed that only 6% of the grant funding that's coming out of the UK actually goes towards environmental causes. So obviously, that's a tiny proportion, mm. you know, when compared with the scale of the challenge that we face. But the good news is, actually, that's a figure that's doubled. So for years and years, it tracked at about 3%. And then the last time we produced this report, it had increased to 6%. So there's definitely a trend that environmental giving is on the rise. But I think effectiveness of that funding and strategic intersectional approaches is definitely still an area of improvement. Another finding of the report was that the funding's really highly skewed and it's also very widely scattered. So for example, it's actually 10 foundations that are providing about 70% of the funding and also a huge amount of organisations are actually only receiving sort of very small grants. So I think it was around two thirds of organisations that we looked at in the data had grants of under 10k. So there does seem to be a sort of lack of overall strategy. 
So absolutely sympathise. And I think another thing as well is looking at the the sort of messiness of the ecosystem in terms of where do fundraisers and organisations actually go to find the funders? Yeah. Because they are there. I mean, we've got about 200 really active funder organisations as part of our network. And one of the things we're trying to do is to produce a directory of those organisations so that the public and fundraisers know where to go to see who are environmental funders, what are they funding, at what levels, because I think so much time is spent researching, trawling through lists, trying to find where these funders are, let alone writing applications and reports, let alone actually sort of getting on with the work. So I think, yeah, there's obviously work to be done on all three fronts, sort of increasing the pie, making that funding more effective, and then also just sort of supporting charities and and pinpointing where the funding is at the moment. And it's terrific that you've seen that figure double, but really 6% is still not a lot, particularly when you think about the far-reaching consequences of the climate emergency for absolutely everyone. And you've talked there about the need to increase the size of the pie to create accessibility for funding in environmental cause areas. But I'd be interested to hear what you think are the main challenges that perhaps those mainstream funders that don't specialise in environmental cause areas face when it comes to saying, we have to tackle this climate emergency. Absolutely. So we do meet with lots of funders who are new to the environment. And we also ran a research project recently speaking to lots of wealth and philanthropy advisors about their clients' experiences. And the main thing that keeps coming up, the main barrier, is a sense of overwhelm at the scale of the issue, the complexity of the climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis and other environmental issues. I think, you know, lots of people are sort of asking questions about, you know, how do I even measure impact? What's the role of government in all of this? And how does my small pot actually sort of fit into the wider picture? So I think there is a sense of yeah paralysis maybe that lots of funders are experiencing, which I know is shared across the third sector yeah. as well. So yeah, it's interesting that funders don't necessarily have those answers. But of course, I think, you know, one of the key things that we always say is you're not alone in in that sense. And there are so many brilliant organizations and funders who've been doing this work for a long time and that can sort of help advise on where to start. And, you know, even through our research, you know, there's sort of key things that you can see. There's certain areas that are really, really key drivers of environmental issues, but that are chronically underfunded. And we sort of call those the Cinderella issues. So things like transport, things like chemicals and toxics, things like consumption that are, you know, real key drivers of environmental problems, but receive the least amount of funding. So there are ways to kind of get going. It's just, yeah, I think the key barrier is this sense of overwhelm. And I think we can all identify with that paralysis. I remember when it, the 1.5 degree report came out. And for me, this is when I saw a real acceleration of awareness. It was COP26. And suddenly we were getting a flood of pitches from people going, we really need to be talking about the environment now. Of course, you've had environmental charities and funders banging that drum for many, many years. But suddenly there was this flurry of activity among bigger funders, among people who didn't necessarily have the environment as a core cause for them going, we've got to wake up to it. But then you have that thing, of, where do I where do I even start? Yeah, of course, it's very overwhelming for all of us and 
as you've laid out, not least for the funders themselves. However, there is also a massive opportunity, right, for funders to be leaders in the third sector in terms of initiating the changes that are required to address the climate crisis. Rachel, how do you see that? How is this a good opportunity for funders and how can they take advantage of it? Absolutely. I mean, I'd I'd like to start by echoing absolutely what Natasha said around that kind of sense of overwhelm, both in the public domain, but also in the kind of funding sector in the kind of scale of the issue. And what ACF have tried to do is by creating the funder commitment on climate change as a framework, we've kind of offered areas where funders can really use their assets and their independence and their influence to have what will hopefully be the best kind of impact for them. And just in terms of funders and the role that they can play, it's really important as they've got that independence, both from government and they're able to, with their independent sources of income for a lot of these funders, they're able to make decisions over what they'd like to fund, as Natasha said, around those kind of Cinderella issues. There's the freedom and the flexibility to potentially look at going into these areas that are chronically underfunded. But there's also the ability for a funder to make that decision of we're in this climate crisis. We do have an option to kind of really spend here and now. Or they have the option, on the other hand, to really focus on that long term element that comes with kind of these foundations that have been around for generations there's the opportunity to say okay there's the climate crisis impacts that we are seeing now and but then thinking about the future for our children's children what can we do now to then have a positive impact for future generations so in terms of the kind of real power of funders both obviously financially but also as leaders in the sector as actors It's that excellent combination of the independence and the flexibility, which really, I think, allows them to be quite strong in this area. And then by using the Funder Commitment Framework, we hope to encourage not just environmental funders, but really funders from across the UK and across many different areas to consider how climate relates to their charitable mission. And so we talk a lot about kind of climate not just being an environmental issue. It's a health issue. It's an education issue. It's an equalities issue. And by kind of linking up a charity, a foundation's mission to the climate crisis, it's almost able to kind of switch on that light bulb and and for people to think, okay, there is a role for us to play here. And by doing our work, for example, around health inequalities, we can also improve air quality, which will then have a positive impact for our climate as well as for health inequalities. Absolutely. And something that you touched on there, which I think is really integral to how this journey is going to play out, is the involvement of young people. There's a real generational movement around the climate emergency, which of course you understand because the generations which are younger are inheriting this world, which is fundamentally broken, and they're going to have to A, deal with the repercussions, and they're going to have to be the ones to fix it. And you are seeing young people becoming so active in this space. I mean, in 2019, you saw school kids around the country participate in a letter writing campaign to Comic Relief. And they wrote to the charity and they said, we love Red Nose Day, we love what you do. But we don't love the fact that you use plastic in your red noses. Can you do something about that? Can you change it? Because we have too much plastic in the world as it is. And the charity actually ended up 
withdrawing its plastic red noses and they released new red noses which were made of a sugarcane byproduct, much, much more eco-friendly. I wonder, Natasha, are you starting to see priorities changing among funders as well as this becomes just an issue that we can't divorce ourselves from? Definitely. I mean, there's sort of two sides for that. There's funding going towards young people, which is still very, very low. But especially within EFN's network, we're seeing a real interest in how to actually fund youth and how to fund youth activism. And we've got a a new pilot program called the Climate Activist Speaker Fund, which launched this year. And it was essentially funders wanting to fund individual young people. But, you know, some of the complications around how you're able to support charities and individuals, it was made sense to create a pooled fund that's now supporting Mm. 10 youth activists from around the world. So it's, for me, so exciting to see that interest and that sort of growing funding available. And then there's this absolutely fascinating wealth transfer happening at the moment amongst funders and a huge yeah, generational transfer of wealth from an older generation to younger millennial donors mm. who actually many of them see themselves as activists and who are sort of beginning to understand the interconnections between the climate crisis and social justice. They're interested in funding in different ways and also So what's really exciting is from some of our conversations with younger donors, they're actually beginning to question what multi-generational inherited wealth is actually doing to our society Mm. and to our environment. And I think those conversations are some of the most interesting and it's sort of creating a massive ripple throughout the sector. And then, of course, you've got organizations like a couple of weeks ago, we had the Lang Kelly Chase Foundation announce that they would be dismantling and and closing, having recognized the scale of the climate and economic and social justice crisis and the sort of implications of colonial capitalism and not being able to sort of overcome that hurdle. And I think this sort of generational transfer and this kind of awakening to these huge issues is sort of really rippling across the sector. And of course, these conversations are absolutely happening in a bubble at the moment. I think that's sort of definitely fair to say. But I also think that they are conversations that are going to become increasingly more mainstream, particularly as we get more extreme weather events in the global north, which is leading to more media coverage, that it's going to really accelerate the pace of these conversations. And I think you can see the outsized impact that young people are having. And it's going to change um, environmental philanthropy, for sure. Well, that's encouraging. (laughs) And Rachel, I wonder if you could tell us any specific examples of foundations and funders who are signed up to the funder commitment on climate change who are supporting their grantees in responding to the climate crisis are there any sort of really exciting innovative new initiatives that you've seen great yes i think it's really important to say first and foremost that acf are really alive to the desire of funders not to put in additional barriers for their grantees and to kind of try and not have environmental considerations put in as an add-on or something that's an additional difficulty and then what we're doing through the funder commitment is really trying to share examples share good practice and what other people are doing so that there's not a sense of reinventing the wheel but one signatory who's doing really exciting 
work around supporting grantees to think about climate is Foundation Scotland, who are Scotland's community foundation. And they've created over the past year a web resource called Designing Projects for People and Planet. And that is a large section on their website where they offer lots of advice, case studies and examples of good practice from community groups to really integrate climate into a funding application. So it offers thoughts around cost considerations, around buildings, around limiting waste and using resources. And it's really offered a way of them helping their grantees to answer the question that they have in their application form around the environmental impact of their project and baking it in from the very beginning rather than it being an add-on. And um, they've really seen an increase in grants that have gone out in the past year to groups tackling climate change. So they've seen that having that resource online has really helped their applicants. But it's also been taken by other community foundations and other funders as a kind of example of good practice and that materials being recycled by other funders. And there's also a wealth of information that funders are kind of signposting their grantees to. So I know that people might be aware of the resources created by Vaughan in the northeast of England, and those are really kind of focused on what third sector organisations can do in terms of actions that they can take around their buildings, around energy efficiency, things like that. And those have also been adapted for Scotland's use by the SCEBO here in Scotland. So they're also online. I think there's a case of bringing people's knowledge together and sharing it so that we have examples of what works. And that's what we're trying to do through the funder commitment on climate change. And then another just quick example of actions taken by other funders. There are quite a few funders, for example, City Bridge Trust and the Barricabri Trust, who are funding their grantees to either undertake carbon literacy courses. So that's helping their education and then kind of able to spread that throughout the organisation and also funding eco audits for buildings. And City Bridge Trust actually then have a dedicated funding pool after organisations have gone through that eco-audit, if there are any kind of capital improvements or refurbishments that have been recommended, they have that funding there for the grantees to then apply for. So it's a case of kind of, you've identified an issue, but there's funding there that you can go on and apply for to make those changes. Some really interesting points here today from both of you. I think before we go, we would just love to hear if you have any advice for organisations who want to be really building this into the ways they work in meaningful ways, not just doing something which could be a bit tokenistic or a bit greenwashy. Do you have any advice that you would give for how you actually make this an integral part of everything that your organisation does? And is there anything that funders can make sure they're doing to support organisations on that journey? Absolutely. I think that's a really important question because we do hear from funders that they're sort of looking for organisations that are moving beyond a lens of carbon counting and organisations being solely focused on their carbon footprint and offsetting, which of course it's an incredibly important part of the work is looking at operations. But I think it's more about demonstrating an integrated approach. So for example, looking at how environmental issues actually intersect 
intersect with your organization's mission, with the relationships, the reach and the voice, and really looking at that and how it's impacting on your service users. And we have a, a new trustee, a Scottish funder who recently joined us and wrote a, a blog post to sort of support organizations with that. And he shared kind of, I guess, four main questions that organizations can be looking at and asking about. The first one is about mitigation. So what can you be doing to support your service users to mitigate things like climate change, biodiversity loss? The second is a really important question around adaptation. Our climate has changed. It is going to continue to change. And particularly for the most vulnerable, we need to be making sure that we're supporting them to adapt to a sort of new reality. And then there's engagement and campaigning. I think lots of charities work with people who are at the front lines of this crisis. And so what can you be doing as a charity to kind of amplify those voices and create impact for your beneficiaries and then also looking at a just transition and how your work can support that because I think a lot of environmental organizations a lot of funders are really recognizing now that unless justice is centered in environmental mm. work there is a real limit to the impact that can be had so I think looking looking at your sort of mission from those four questions is, is potentially a really good place to start. Thank you so much. Rachel, any final thoughts to add to Natasha there? I suppose from a funder's perspective, we're seeing more and more funders kind of bake in climate crisis, the environment, biodiversity into their strategy. We've seen a number of funder commitment signatories place the climate kind of at the heart of their strategy, therefore ensuring that everything that they do integrates climate in some way or form. So it's not just around the resources that they commit but it's around a commitment to educate staff and encourage grantees to consider these things, considering how they can use their investments or ensure that their investments are not adding to the climate crisis and helping go towards a post-carbon future. But also there's a role, I think, for funders to really bring their beneficiaries and their grantees together and to learn from each other. There's lots of environmental funding going on at the moment, but if there's no real learning around that and there's no sharing what works and what doesn't work and there's a risk that potentially we might lose some really helpful information and helpful impact so I know that that's something that for example the co-op foundation are doing so I think there's a role for funders to do a bit more of, of that. Absolutely. And that takes us back really nicely full circle to Janet Thorne's point at the beginning about getting out of your silos and yeah, trying to make a difference, trying to address this crisis in a holistic way. So Rachel from ACF and Natasha from the Environmental Funders Network, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks again so much to this week's guests, and I do hope you've enjoyed listening to that discussion. Next week, we'll be delving into the thorny issue of pay in the charity sector, looking at how charities under pressure to keep costs down as they compete for public service contracts can ensure fair pay for all. And we are, as usual, looking for submissions for Charity Change My Life. We want short voice notes from your service users telling us how you are changing their lives for the better as a small feature at the end of our podcasts. You can find out more information on how to submit a testimonial in the show notes. But for now, thanks again to our guests, Natasha Ratter and Rachel Heidecker and our producer, Nav Powell.